reading from Psalm 51, verses 1 to 14. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done evil what is and, and has done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O Lord, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Reading from Psalm 103, verses 1 to 4 and verse 12. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion? As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Good morning. Good morning. Better. Good to be with you all this morning. I want to start by saying that uh, I wrote my sermon on Monday. Not so you're super impressed with uh, how on top of things I am, but I want to say that because on Tuesday, I read news about uh, a pastor, a very well-known pastor in Ontario uh, being arrested for assault. And while this news doesn't change what I have to say, um, it does make me want to start by emphasizing that, yes, God forgives, and that we are to forgive. But forgiveness doesn't mean that there is no accountability. 
And first and foremost, the church is supposed to be a safe space for people, particularly people who have been abused or hurt or oppressed. It is not supposed to be a safe space for perpetrators. So for anyone who has experienced abuse, know that we want this to be a safe place and that you should always feel free to talk to anyone on leadership about any abuse or any discomfort that you've experienced. Let's pray. God, we have come to you this morning from different places. You know our hearts. You know what it is we need to hear. So God, where there is comfort needed, I ask that you would bring comfort. Where there is challenge needed, I ask that you would bring challenge. And God, I ask that your spirit would cover us all in your grace. Amen. Does anyone here like country music? <laughs> okay, there's two, three. <laughs> uh, yeah, Bruce, he said, I don't know if Spring Garden is kind of a country music crowd. Um, and apparently he was right, but it's okay. <laughs> there's a few of you. So if I said, um, you know, you have to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to... And know when to run. Okay, wow. That's okay. Um, so I love country music, um, particularly in the summer when it's nice. If I'm driving, I want to listen to some good country music. Uh, now, Sam and Greg would probably say it's because I'm from Keswick, but Keswick isn't super country. Um, <laughs> Keswick is more suburban. But I did grow up going to my grandparents' sheep farm, which is way up north, about seven hours from here, where there are dirt roads and um, you know there was a party line for a phone line. So maybe that's where I got this love for country music. I'm not sure. But when I heard that uh, our next series was going to be on forgiveness, all the, the country songs from my past <laughs> came flooding back because this is a, a very popular song and a popular theme in country music. Uh, one song in particular is by uh, the band who was formerly called the Dixie Chicks, and they wrote this song, and it was um, a response to them being canceled. Now, this was written in the early 2000s, kind of before cancel culture was trendy. And you might have heard about cancel culture. It's something that will pop up in the news cycle, um, sometimes it pops up in your news feed, and it's usually when an individual, often a celebrity or a band, a group of people, when they say something that is controversial or politically incorrect, and they get canceled. People jump on them and say, you know, cancel them. Uh, we don't want to hear anything they have to say after hearing what they've said on this topic. A couple of years ago, Margaret Atwood and J.K. Rowling and other celebrities and academics signed a letter and uh, they asked for cancel culture to be canceled because they found it to be intolerant of diverse opinions. And the question they posed is this, how can we expect to have open debate and toleration of difference if we jump to cancel any opinion that is different from our own? It's a good question. 
and a good question for us to be asking, particularly in the church, because cancel culture isn't very forgiving. forgiving. There's not room for forgiveness. So in 2003, I'm going to call them the Dixie Chicks. Uh, the Dixie Chicks were on the receiving end of cancel culture. They were doing a show in London, and uh, the night before, the president of the US had declared war on Iraq. And so as they were at their concert, uh, one of the singers, she got up and she said that she was ashamed that the president was from their home state of Texas. Now this caused quite the controversy um, because as you can imagine, country music is very popular in the South, in the Southern United States. And so for her to say this about the US president um, caused a lot of people to get upset and radio stations started canceling their music. Um, people were speaking out against them and all of the success that they had enjoyed in Nashville and other places that was pretty much gone overnight. Now being canceled didn't just mean that their music was cut, it meant that they received a lot of criticism, a lot of hate, and even death threats. So a few years later, they came back. They came back with a song, and this song was called Not Ready to Make Nice. This is a song that um, introduced me to them. I didn't really know about them before. But in it, they talk about all the pain that they experienced as a result of being ostracized. The first line goes like this. Forgive sounds good. Forget. I'm not sure I could. They say time heals everything, but I'm still waiting. I think this is a pretty good way of describing forgiveness. Forgiveness sounds good. I think we can all agree it sounds good. And we know it's something we should do. Just forgive. Just forgive others as God forgives us. But we all know it's not that easy. Forgiveness is a difficult topic. Many of us probably have people in our own lives that we struggle to forgive. We might try, but their actions, the things they have done to hurt us, might come back and haunt us. I remember I had a, a rift with a very good friend in university. And after a while, we agreed to meet up. And I drove out to meet her. We sat down and had coffee. We talked. I felt great. I felt like, yes, I've forgiven her. And then I drove home, and to get home, I had to get on the 401, um, heading east from Mississauga in rush hour. So uh, if you've ever done that, you know, that will take a lot of time. I think it was about two hours on the road, and by the time I got home, I was so angry. And I realized I hadn't forgiven her at all. I was still so hurt by her actions and what she had done. Forgiveness sounds good, but it's not easy. At my last church, I spent a lot of time with our young adults. And I remember telling them that whenever we are looking at a difficult topic, whenever we're asking a hard question, we don't want to start with, with our feelings or our circumstances. We want to start with God. What does God say about this? What does God's character reveal about this? 
And that's what we're going to be doing this morning. In the next few weeks, we'll be looking at how to forgive others and how to forgive ourselves. But today, we're looking at God's forgiveness. And Karen read Psalm 51 for us. And this psalm is attributed to King David. It was written after he had forced Bathsheba to sleep with him, and I'm putting it mildly. And then once he finds out she's pregnant, he knows there's trouble because she's married to someone else. So what does he do? He arranges for her husband, Uriah, to be murdered. And then when he's out of the way, he brings Bathsheba into his home, into his palace, and he claims her as his own. So he has done a lot to cover up the crime he's committed. And he's going about his life when the prophet Nathan comes to him. And if you want to read the story, you can read it in 2 Samuel chapter 11. But the prophet Nathan comes to him and calls him out for what he's done. And suddenly, it seems, David is overwhelmed by his sin. He's overwhelmed with contrition. Contrition, this, this word, that means that you have a profound awareness of your sin. Now, David is profoundly aware that he has done something terrible. And he cries out to God for mercy. And I think it's important to, to see the, the order of, of his speech, of what he says. He doesn't start by focusing on the gravity of his sin. But he starts by focusing on who God is, on God's mercy. He says, against you only have I sinned. This might be a bit of a puzzling statement because David's sin wasn't only against God. It was against Bathsheba. It was against her husband Uriah. It was against his unborn child. It was against all the people that God has instructed him to lead and to love. But I think what we see here is not that David's sin was only against God, but that it is a sin against God. Biblical tradition shows us that any sin, any hurt we do to others, is a hurt to God. Anytime we act out of selfishness, we hurt God. And more than that, we act in opposition to God because God is working to restore all things, to make all things new. If you've read the parable in Matthew 25, you'll know that it makes the same point that when you do harm to others or when you do good to others, you do this to God, the same thing. When you feed the hungry, you feed Jesus. When you visit the sick, you visit Jesus. When you show love to people who are in prison, you show love to Jesus. The way we treat others and the way we treat the world around us has consequences that go beyond our actions, consequences that enter into the realm of the heavenly. So our sin is never only between us and God but it is always between us and God. So David acknowledges this 
He acknowledges that he has sinned against God, especially as someone who has been put in a position of leadership, someone who has been given authority over people, and someone who has been given power. He acknowledges that he's used that power to harm people. He sinned against God and against those he was leading. So first, he turns to God in repentance. Repentance, something that starts on the inside. Before apologies are made, before hearts are broken over what has happened, there has to be repentance. And this is that word I used earlier, contrition, to have a contrite heart. The biblical scholar Ellen Davis, she describes contrition as having the courage to let your heart break over sin. And I love that she uses the word courage. It shows that what causes us to try and hide our sin from others and from God is fear. Now, we saw this from the beginning with Adam and Eve. When they eat the forbidden fruit, the first thing they do is they go and they hide from God. But they learn, as David learns, that you can't hide from God for long. And when we have no choice but to stop hiding, it requires courage to face what we have done. And it is in this place of courage that we become aware of our need, our need for God. So David, as he's writing this psalm, we see he gets to this place of realizing that he needs God. And he asks, he asks for God's steadfast love and for his abundant mercy. The term for steadfast love is the word hesed, and it describes God's limitless and unconditional love. And the term for abundant mercy, one of my favorite words in the Old Testament, rakam, it refers to womb compassion. The compassion that a mother has for her child in the womb. This is how David understands God's relationship to him. One of unconditional love and womb compassion. The way a parent feels about a child. So that's where we start as we talk about God's forgiveness. We start with God, his unconditional love and his womb compassion that he has for us. And then we go to us, our need, our broken state, all of us, the, the broken state of humanity. As David acknowledges his own conditions, his iniquity, his transgressions, his sin, he implies in verse five that he was born into this. He was born into sin. And he's not making a statement about his mother or the way he was conceived. He's not saying that at all. He's just acknowledging that this is something that humans can't escape. You can't escape sin. 
What does this mean? What does this mean that we can't escape sin? There are a few different theological ways I could explain it, but instead I would like to use an example from the show The Good Place. It's a show starring Kristen Bell, and uh, this might ruin it for you if you haven't seen it, so I apologize. But it's about the good place, and people, when they die, they either go to the good place or the bad place. And how you get there is based on the points that you accumulate in your life. Again, not a theologically correct example, but I think it will help make the point. So every action that you do is tied to a point system. If you do something good, say if you save a puppy, you will get a good number of points. If you do something bad, say you cheat on your taxes, you lose points. So they're examining this point system, and they realize that no one has gotten into the good place in a very long time. So they start to look at why, what's been going on. And they take this man, Douglas, and they look at his action. His action was he went to the store and he bought a tomato. Did anyone buy a tomato this week? Yeah, okay, a few of you. So by buying a tomato, he got negative 12 points. And they're saying, well, how can this be? How can buying a tomato get you closer to the bad place? And they see that, okay, buying a tomato, he got a few points because he went to the store. That was a good thing. He intended to make a salad, another good thing. But by buying one tomato, he was also contributing to toxic pesticide use, exploiting labor, and contributing to global warning warming. So negative 12 points, buying a tomato. Douglas thought he was making one choice, but in reality, he was making many different choices with that one tomato and many choices that contribute to the brokenness of the world. This shows us that even though we live in a world, or even though we can try to do good things, our actions contribute to the broken systems that are not honoring to God and are not honoring to the dignity of people. So if our well-intentioned actions can hurt others, how much more do our selfish actions hurt others? Now David understands this, this condition that we're all in. And so he pleads with God. He says, God, create in me a clean heart. He needs to be changed. He needs new life. He needs God. <coughs> Excuse me. I remember when I was little, I was six, and I, uh, I gave my heart to Jesus. I became a Christian. And I just remember having this sense that I needed God, that I couldn't do life without God. I didn't have a very dramatic lifestyle change after that. As I mentioned, I was six. But I remember growing up in the church, especially as I got into high school, and I remember hearing these dramatic conversion stories, stories of people who had left behind drinking and drugs and 
promiscuity, and it's amazing how changed they are. And I started to worry. I didn't have that dramatic change. I wondered if I should take up something to rebel a little more. <laughs> you know, should I start littering? Should I miss curfew? I did miss curfew once. I missed it to stay at youth group, and I got in a lot of trouble. But there was this pattern that I saw of highlighting people's stories of what you would say are the bad sins, right? And I get why we do this. And I think part of that is, again, our own broken nature, that we want to really focus on the sin. Oh, look how bad this person was. Look at this awful thing he did. Look at that horrible way she lived, and yet, amazingly, God changed her. You know, we're surprised when we hear these stories. And we focus on the sin. But I don't think we're called to focus on the sin. We want to be aware of our sin, yes, but we don't stay in that space. We need to move to the need. We are this way because we need God. So being a Christian doesn't require that dramatic conversion story. If you have one, again, amazing testament to God's grace. But if you don't, that's okay too. We all need our hearts to change. We all need God to save us from the sin that so easily and sometimes unknowingly entangles us. A couple of weeks ago, I got to hear a friend of mine speak about her experience with AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. And she was describing the community, the accountability, and I said to her, this sounds a lot like the way church should be. I was reading an author, and he described AA like this. He said, I think of an organization like Alcoholics Anonymous, which has no building, no budget, no priesthood, but only people who come together wherever they are to seek help in their helplessness from each other and from God, and who are ready at any ungodly moment of day or night to go to each other's rescue. People coming to AA are aware of their need they are aware that they need a higher power in order to change. And that this ability doesn't exist within themselves. They can't conjure up the will or the desire to do it on their own. They are aware that help comes from one thing. Relationship. Relationship with God, relationship with others in their community. And this awareness of need is what being a Christian is all about. Having that humility, that attitude, that openness. The very first sermon I preached was on a Saturday night, and it was in a dimly lit sanctuary at my last church. We had this program called Out of the Cold. And um, I hadn't done any preaching before, so they were like, all right, this will be a good, a good place, a good safe space for you to, to have your first sermon. And it was very different <laughs> from the Sunday morning crowd. 
These were people coming who were either underhoused or living on the streets. I remember sitting in that sanctuary and the smell that filled the room. I remember the, the clothing that people were wearing. It was dirty, it was ripped. I remember their fingernails. It looked like they hadn't been able to wash their hands in a long time. But more than all that, I remember the tears that were flowing down people's faces as I spoke about God's love, God's unconditional love. As we drew the night to a close, we invited people to come forward, to come and receive the cup and the bread. And as they came forward, I could see how hungry they were, not just for food, but for God. There was no pretense. They may not have had a theologically correct understanding of communion, but they had a deep awareness of their own need for God and a desire for more of him. God is merciful and compassionate. So let's get to forgiveness now. How does God forgive? And from this psalm, from Psalm 51, we get a clear picture of how God offers forgiveness, that it's lavish and abundant, and most importantly, available. God's forgiveness restores us to joy and sustains our spirit. It causes us to praise. So the question, how does God forgive, is maybe a bit misleading, because it implies that forgiveness is something God does. But forgiveness is who God is. Whether our sin is dramatic or minor, God forgives because that's who he is. With David, we see that God brought forgiveness and restoration for him. This didn't mean that there weren't any consequences for his sin. The consequences were, were many. It affected his family, generations to come, and of course, Bathsheba. There always has to be accountability when there is sin. And God requires justice. But God doesn't hold those sins against us. He didn't hold those sins against David. Sin doesn't exempt us from God's love. God takes our sins, and as the psalm says, he removes them far from us, as far as the east is from the west. Bruce will make fun of me because I like to explain theology to Miles, and yesterday he asked me, um, as we drove by an Orthodox church, he said, well, why does that church look different than our church? And so, and, you know, under a minute, I explained to him the great schism that caused the church to divide into <laughs> east and west, and he was like, uh-huh, okay. <laughs> but I have this thing I like to do with him, and I'll say, Miles, how much do I love you? This much? And he says, no. 
this much? No. And we keep going until I get to this much. And he says, yes. And then I'll, you know, hug him until he can't breathe anymore. And that's how God loves us. As far as the east is from the west, they never meet. And he doesn't love us based on what we do, but he loves us this much. Enough to give his life for our life. That is what womb compassion is, when you give your body for the life of another. God gave himself on the cross in the ultimate display of womb compassion. He gave himself so that everyone could experience a relationship with him. And as you get to know God, as you come to know his love, his compassion, you understand, as we sang, that there is a wideness to God's mercy. You come to understand that when you acknowledge your need for God, that when you stop hiding, that when you come to Christ, you will discover that you are already forgiven. Now, the Dixie Chicks, they came out of their season of being canceled with a song. They also ended up changing their name from the Dixie Chicks to the Chicks because of the connotations associated with the term Dixie that go back to a time of slavery, of enslaving others. I'm not commenting on, on what they did, but I do think it shows that there was room for them to grow, that they were able to, to find some accountability, a need for change, and that they did that. And we see that for David, too. He comes out of his season of repentance with praise. He says, let me sing about all the good things you do for me. I will open my mouth and I will sing your praise. And this is how we respond to a God who is forgiveness. A God who shows us mercy and compassion. We respond with praise. God doesn't cancel us, but he cancels our sin in that he removes the gap it creates between us and between him. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your abundant mercy, for the compassion you showed us by giving your son on the cross. And God, if there are any stories in here that need to be changed, we ask that you would rewrite them so that they are not stories of condemnation, but stories that are full of grace, stories that are a testament to your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.